I have a message for you this morning that you will not believe, but you need if you're going to live a life that's truly alive. We talked at the beginning how John says in chapter 20 that he wrote all these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, although he actually says so that you might believe that the Christ is Jesus and by believing might have life in his name. And having an introduction to who Jesus is and um, verses of John the Baptist's testimony and Jesus gathering his disciples, he's going to begin now. That we come this morning to Jesus' first miracle. John calls it a sign. Because a sign points the way to something that is true. It points us that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that my believing that we might have life in his name. The message I have for you this morning is that Jesus is the Christ. And that the Christ is one who will enter into all of the emptiness in your life and fill it up with so much joy that you don't know how to contain it or handle it. That Jesus' first work is to enter into a wedding where they have run out of wine. And it's easy to come across this passage and think that it's primarily about the fact that Jesus can do really amazing things. Uh, Or maybe that he just really likes weddings or likes to be nice to people. But the first thing you need to know is that there is a long Old Testament history of wine as a sign for joy. As a sign for fullness and peace the way things should be. In Genesis 27, Jacob blesses his son, and his blessing is this, May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. In Deuteronomy 7, the Lord says, Here's what it's going to look like. When I'm your God and you're my people, I'm going to bless you. And it's going to look like this. I will love you and bless you and multiply you. I will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that I swore to your fathers to give to you. The Lord gave the Israelites... um, a set of three festivals where they're all to gather together and celebrate what he did every year. Passover and weeks and tabernacles. Each one of these is like our Christmas and Easter and Pentecost, days where we remember and celebrate what the Lord has done. And so what the Israelites were required to do by law is to gather together in large groups and invite everyone to come around them and eat their minds out and to drink a lot of wine. One rabbi said, until you know the joy of tabernacles, you don't know joy. And so even after the exile, after the Israelites were carried off into a foreign land and then brought back, one of the first things that happens when they come back, Nehemiah chapter 8, is they again celebrate the feast for the first time in a long time. 
And Nehemiah says this. This is Nehemiah 8.10. He said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And in Isaiah, when he prophesies about what emptiness, what the lack of presence of the Lord looks like, he says, this is Isaiah 24, There is an outcry in the streets for a lack of wine. For all joy has grown dark, and the gladness of the earth has banished. That throughout the Old Testament, the Lord has used wine and the feeling of gladness that it brings when you drink as a symbol for what he is going to do and and what goodness is for all of the good things that we can hope out of life. That wine is joy. And Jesus has entered into a wedding where they have run out of wine. First of all, just on a practical level, this is a, this is a major deal. I mean, it's a major deal now. It was really a major deal then. That in our culture, it's the father of the bride that provides the expenses for the wedding and the reception. In ancient Israel, it was the bridegroom. It was the husband-to-be. It was his responsibility to provide a celebration for everyone, the key element of which was being wine. And so if there was one thing that needed to not happen at a wedding, it would be to not run out of wine. And here we are in this major moment of crisis because uh, Jesus was invited. It's near his hometown. His mother's there. His brothers are there. All of his disciples are there. This is probably some sort of extended family gathering. It may be that Mary... Jesus' mother has concern because she's got some level of responsibility. Jesus, they have run out of wine. But all these Old Testament connections tell us that there's, there's more than social awkwardness taking place. That um, from this moment on, so many of these stories in John become like lived parables. They're parables that actually happened. And so Jesus enters into the celebration of his own people where their wine, their, their joy has run out. Because that's the world that you live in. We're at a stage of parenting in our house. So, the, you know, there's the early stage where children just need to know that they're loved and when they cry, someone's going to come. I enjoyed that stage of parenting. And not that I don't enjoy this stage now, but there are days where I feel like my ministry to my children is primarily to teach them that the world does not have enough. That we do not have enough resources to get every toy that you want or every piece of fast food that you might desire. Uh, John D. Rockefeller, who at one point owned more than 90% of everything in this country related to drilling, refining, and selling oil, had two children, and he bought them one bicycle. 
because he wanted his children to know that the world does not have enough. And I don't know when your joy ran out. But I know that it happened sooner than you wanted. Because the world does not have enough, does not have enough time. There's not enough security. There's not enough significance or love or hope or food in some places. And most of all, there is not enough joy. There are, um, there are six stone jars present. And John goes out of his way to tell us that these were the sort of jars that they used for the ceremonial washings. So Leviticus talks a lot about clean and unclean. The jars are made out of stone because stone is more impermeable than clay. And so something unclean can touch the outside of the jars without transferring the uncleanness to the inside, which, according to Leviticus, is not what happens with clay jars. And so there's six of them there. They were probably there for the guests at the wedding to wash their hands on the way in, um, to wash certain utensils so that everyone who entered into the wedding might be clean, might be protected from the uncleanness of the world. And yet here, even at at this place of greatest social import, of greatest joy where they have entered by the washings of Israel and entered into joy, the wine has run out. And so Jesus enters in. And he makes wine. Perhaps many of you have read the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, the line, the witch in the wardrobe, I think being the more, most famous, tells the story of four children that pass through a wardrobe into another world. There's seven books in the series, and um, each of the books tell a different part of the story of people from our world interacting with this other world, and they don't happen in chronological order. In the line, the witch in the wardrobe, the children pass through the wardrobe and suddenly find themselves in a forest in winter. And in the middle of the forest is a lantern. It's called Lantern Waste. And um, C.S. Lewis lets you wander through six of these books before you find out why on earth is there a lantern in the middle of the forest? So in book number six, C.S. Lewis goes back in time and talks about where this world came from. And the children, at that time, enter this world, and it's dark. Except for singing. Someone is singing. And then the stars turn on. And the moon turns on. And the sun comes up and they realize the singing is coming from a lion. 
Um, if you've read the other books, is Aslan. He's the, um, he's the creator figure, the Lord. And then C.S. Lewis writes this. The lion was pacing to and fro about the empty land and singing his new song. It was softer and more lilting than the song by which he had called up the stars and the sun. A gentle, rippling music. And as he walked and sang, the valley grew green with grass. It spread out from the lion like a pool. It ran up the sides of the little hills like a wave. In a few minutes, it was creeping over the lower steps of the distant mountains, making the young world every moment softer. The light wind could now be heard ruffling in the grass. Soon there were other things beside grass. The higher slopes grew dark with heather. Patches of rougher and more bristling green appeared in the valley. Diggory did not know what they were until one began coming up quite close to him. It was a little spiky thing that threw out dozens of arms and covered these arms with green and grew larger at the rate of about an inch every two seconds. There were dozens of these things all around him now. They were nearly as tall as himself when he realized what they were. Trees! he exclaimed. So the story continues that the lion is singing the world into existence in this picture of creation. C.S. Lewis describes it as magic. The world is so new and so young. Things are springing into life. And in this moment, in this place, one of the people with them has, who has passed into the world has in their hand a metal rod torn off of a lamppost, and they throw it down on the ground. And the children notice a few minutes later behind them a short little lamppost that is growing taller and taller. And in this leftover magic of the energy of creation, this little rod of metal has spontaneously generated into a shining lamppost. Hence the lamp of lantern waste. It's this residual energy from creation. And so Jesus enters into the wedding and does something like this. The one who created and made in the beginning brings the energy of creation, and not just of creation, of new creation, and takes the everyday stuff, the stuff you drink in the normal times, of water and through his recreational power transforms it into the stuff of celebration. It's like this residual leftover energy from creation. And he does so not anywhere but in the stone jars. Back in the day we were unclean And there was a need to be washed with the ceremonial washings of the Old Testament. That was a way to do things, and that way is now fulfilled in a new way. In in the very place of their worship and ceremony, filled with the everyday stuff of water, now comes overflowing provision of wine, filled to the brim. It is not an accident, by the way. That John tells us the number of jars, which is six. 
which is one short of seven, which is the number for enough in Hebrew culture. That there are almost but not enough jars to complete the job of joy. And they each hold 20 to 30 gallons, and Jesus has them filled to the brim. And so if you do the math, Jesus creates somewhere between 120 and 150 gallons of the very best wine. After they've already consumed all the wine. The fact that there is way more than necessary is the point. It is vastly out of proportion. That there is no need for 150 gallons of the best wine at a wedding like this. Can you imagine if we had like an Easter breakfast here and we had enough wine for everyone to consume it all? And then someone showed up and provided that much wine, which, by the way, translates into about 700 bottles of the expensive stuff. Look, I get the dangers of alcoholism. I get it. But there's something dramatic taking place here that should make us a little uncomfortable. That in Jesus' world, it's necessary to have way more than enough. One of my friends had a little daughter who was in their kitchen at one point looking across the countertop at a cake. Eyeball to cake. And she says, Dad, is it okay if I have a whole lot more than I need? And what do I say as a parent? No. And what does Jesus say? Yes! Yes, it is. Because that is what I, as the Christ, am here to do. That this emptiness, this gnawing emptiness, this open wound that you have been dealing with for all time, I am here to fill that up in the very place of your pain and need. And that's how we know, by the way, that Jesus is the Messiah. Because that's what the Messiah does. In um, Genesis 49, I wrote this as a reflection in the beginning of the worship folder. Jacob is blessing his sons. And when he comes to Judah, who is, the fa- who is in the line of Christ, is one of the fathers of Christ, He blesses Judah in this way. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. My friends, it is a prophecy that the one from whom the scepter shall not depart is the Christ. And we know that he has come when one enters into the world in such a way that not only are they not plagued by the emptiness and the lack of joy, they have so much joy, they have so much wine, it's like they've washed their clothes in it. 
they can spread it and share it with other people all beyond any sort of proportion. See the same thing about the coming Christ in uh, the passage from the call to worship, Isaiah 25. On this mountain, that's Jerusalem, by the way, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up the covering that is over all peoples, covering of death. And so when one comes who has the power to turn water into wine, we know that the ministry of the Christ has begun. But Jesus is more than one who can turn water into wine. It's not just an accident that this miracle happened at a wedding. Because... The Christ is also the bridegroom. That we know in the Old Testament, the Lord begins referring to himself as Israel's husband. A theme that comes up again and again in the book of Hosea and Isaiah, Isaiah 62. That you, my people, are like my bride. I'm your husband. I have loved you and chased after you, the Lord says. And the world, according to the scriptures, is going to end with a wedding. Revelation 9, 6. Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. That we may live in a world with not enough, but Jesus doesn't live in that world. He lives in a world where his ministry begins and ends at a wedding with a lot of wine. And so some might say that the world began with a big bang and it's going to end with a big crunch. I'm not quite sure what kind of meaning that leaves us with. But the message of the scriptures is that the world began with a wedding and it's going to end with a wedding. And that is the meaning and that is where we are headed. To a massive celebration where we are involved in getting married to the king and he has provided a big load of wine. Because it's the bridegroom that provides the wine, right? So the master of the ceremonies tastes the wine and he goes to the bridegroom asking him about the wine, not realizing that he's going to the wrong bridegroom. That Jesus is saying, when I enter into the world, this is the kind of work that I do. I bring joy and emptiness because I, I am the bridegroom. And I have arrived. And my ministry has begun. And from this point on, I'm going to bring joy. And we are all headed to a place where we will be gathered together. So when is this going to happen? Well, Jesus says to his mom, my hour has not yet come. 
Well, apparently it was about to because he did the miracle a couple seconds later. In John, my hour always means the hour of my death. The hour that Jesus accomplishes his mission and also receives glory for dying on behalf of the saints and rising again from the dead. That that is how he accomplishes this work. And the moment that he begins performing signs and doing wonders and bringing joy, we are on a trajectory to that death. And so, it's unlikely that Jesus' mom was really asking for a miracle, by the way, because this is Jesus' first miracle. But she, Jesus being perfect, um, probably had an experience of him up to this point where, look, if Jesus finds out about something, who knows what will happen, but it will turn out well. Because he does all things well. And uh, so is his mom. She's like, hey, Jesus, they have no wine. Do whatever he tells you. Somehow, even when you're the Savior, you can get mommed. And Jesus does a bunch of things all at the same time. He shows his mom respect. Uh, the, woman, the, the, the word here is woman, but it doesn't really, it just, in our culture when you say woman, it's, it's not respectful. It was then. So um, what he means is something more like ma'am. And so it's respectful, but it also, it is distancing. He doesn't say mom that something has happened to him at his baptism, where Mary is still his mom, but he is now the Christ. And no one has special access to the Christ. He says, I hear what you're saying, but my hour will come when my father decides that it will come. I will do things on my own time. But then he does initiating this first sign and beginning the process that will bring him to the cross. And so here's my answer to the question of when. Already and not yet. Because in the moment that Jesus begins his ministry and turns water into wine, he has begun bringing joy into the dark places. But he will not be finished. In fact, he himself is not going to drink wine again until we are finished with this work and gathered together in his presence. And so it's already and not yet that we look to Jesus for joy in the midst of our darkness and yet do not expect it to fully fill us up. None of this stuff was really designed to fill us up because he is what is designed to fill us up. And we are looking forward to that feast with him. So what do we do? Well, the first step for most of us, I think often the hardest step, is to admit that you do not have enough. To join Mary in saying, Jesus, we've run out of wine. That it is good and right for me to desire more than is here. That this is not enough. I was made for more than this, and it hurts. 
and I'm going to go to you because I need something more than this because there's nowhere else to go. A pastor I once had once said that there are few things better that can happen to a person than to realize early in their days that unless some great healer comes into their life, they will simply not have enough. And the second thing is to look for Jesus to work in unexpected places. A friend of mine recently had to make a decision about whether they were going to go travel back to be with their family or not. And um, in sharing this decision with me, they mentioned that someone else had shared with them that they should go back. And the reason being that you never know what the Lord is going to do. What he might do in you, what he might do in all the brokenness of your family and the relationships there, you go. And it might be really bad and it might be awesome, but you don't know what he can do because he can. And someone that can enter into a situation with that kind of brokenness, with that kind of hope, is one that knows that there is one out there who can make wine out of water. And no matter how dark or broken the inside of your life or your relationship with others or your need, you don't know what the Lord just may decide to do in that place. And while we're waiting, do two things that may seem a little bit contradictory. One is to put away your lesser joys. Look, my friends, it, it really gets better than whatever it is that you medicate yourself with. Because we all stuff stuff into that hole. There's different stuff that works for us, and we do it because it works, right? I just feel better when I eat more or when I look at pornography or when I spend more, or when I drink too much. It actually works for a little while. But my friends, there's a better joy to be had. That healing begins in giving up that stuff and going to do it with Jesus instead. to be open about the emptiness and to expect that he can provide you something better than what you're medicating yourself with. And finally, I want you to feast. To give up lesser joys, but to celebrate the joy that is coming. This, I don't know if I can preach this passage very well because this is one of my favorite Bible passages and those usually don't make for great sermons because I don't know why. You just get too excited. I don't know if it comes across. But the first time I heard someone preach on this passage, I went home and I cracked open a bottle of wine because I felt awesome. 
Because I really got it for the first time that this is what Jesus is going to do. It is going to be awesome. Whatever it is that you think never really works out, relationships, they're never really like that. They can be. They really can be. It really can be that good. And there is something holy and righteous about celebrating the fact that we know that is coming now. That is what the biblical holidays are all about. And so, my friends, I recommend to you that you go home this afternoon and crack open a bottle of wine and have a couple glasses. But maybe do it differently than you usually do. It's not an escape or a rest. It's a, it's a party. It's a little taste now of what we know that we're headed for, that it's okay to have joy in that now because the joy is coming in what Christ is going to fill up. Because if we are headed to a wedding, then our worship service really is just a repeated wedding rehearsal. I've been to quite a few wedding rehearsals. I've got to perform some. They're usually awesome. They're either awesome or terrible. (laughs) There's nothing in between. But it's a time of great joy where we gather together and we practice what's about to happen. The fulfillment of all this expectation and a moment of great community peace and joy. That's what this is. We are rehearsing ourselves for the great meal, the celebration filled with wine that's coming our way. It's worth it to buy expensive meals for, some, for people sometimes. Um, I'll close with this. Um, as the gospel has impacted me more and more, um, for a long time I've thought, you know, you're never quite sure how to help homeless people, but people can always eat, and so I should probably buy them food, but I usually don't. And I've started doing that. This is a new policy of mine now. If somebody asks me for food, I will get them something to eat. So I was in the Windward Mall a few weeks ago, and a guy came up, and he's like, hey, do you have a couple dollars I could really use something to eat? And I was like, yes, I'd love to buy you something to eat. What would you like? What would you like? And do you know what he wanted? He wanted a venti caramel frappuccino. And I bought it for him. Because you know what? That's the gospel. He doesn't need it. And I don't care. And I hope that he had an awesome afternoon. And that somewhere in that moment, he had a taste. That there is someone out there that can bring joy into the darkness. And that he could for a little while have hope in that. Let's pray. Lord, um, 